This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so this is the other house that I told you about where another person is sick. The sister? Yeah, that's right. So this is Jefferson Avenue, and it used to be called Peters Avenue when they were here. And it um, took me a while to figure that out. That's why we've been driving around in a circle, because they renamed it a long time ago. Okay, so who lived here? So Uncle Robert and Aunt Mary and Gertrude and Annie and Elise, five people. Can you believe five people lived in this house? And um, Elise was the one who was really sick. What happened? She was complaining of these stomach pains, and she was kind of going in and out of consciousness in this house 100 years ago. Can you believe that? Wow. Okay, and so remember that I took you to the other house where Mary Agnes and her parents died. That was at the other house. Yeah. Robert and Mary Crawford's home on Peters Avenue in uptown New Orleans was quiet. In the early morning hours of Saturday, September 23, 1911, Elise Crawford lay in her bed. She had seemed destined to have a short, difficult life. Elise had a baby out of wedlock and then felt forced to place it for adoption. Then the man she loved refused to marry her. In the aftermath, Elise had become secretly addicted to morphine, and then she had gone on to spend the last year mourning the deaths of both of her parents and her sister. And now, the 25-year-old was dying. Their family physician, Dr. Marianne McGuire, carefully examined Elise's pupils. He said that they were the size of pinpoints. Dr. McGuire called an ambulance and sent Elise to nearby Charity Hospital. Author Alan Gotro says that her medical condition seemed to deteriorate over just a few days until her suffering was finally over. Elise's breathing became very shallow and she was brought to Charity Hospital. And at 6.30 a.m. that morning, she expired. She never regained consciousness. The family buried her on September 24th, 1911, in the same plot with her father and her mother and her younger sister. Aunt Mary wept over the death of her niece, the fourth death in just a little more than a year. Gertrude cried too. Then Aunt Mary turned to Annie for a shared sense of sorrow. But as before, there was nothing there. She said that Annie displayed not the slightest trace of emotion when Elise died. But then another interesting thing happened just a few days after Elise's death. Annie rapped on the office door of the railway where Elise worked as a stenographer. As Annie sat down, 
she told the supervisors that Elise had died two days earlier. Annie was there to collect her sister's paycheck of $45, which would be worth about $1,300 today. The supervisor scribbled out the amount on a check, tore it off, and handed it to Annie. I know I said earlier that everyone mourns differently, but Annie Crawford reacted so coldly to her younger sister's death, it just keeps feeling suspicious to me. It was also suspicious to Elise's personal physician, Dr. Marion McGuire, and he relayed those concerns to the medical examiner. Soon, Annie visited the medical examiner's office. As she had done three times before, she was there to retrieve Elise's death certificate so she could collect Elise's life insurance money. But this time, the medical examiner hesitated. He looked Annie over and refused to declare a cause of death. This was the start of many problems for Annie Crawford, and historian Terence Fitzmorris says that the medical examiner was suspicious thanks to Dr. McGuire and Annie's own family. The suspicion came from her aunt and her sister Gertrude. They're the ones that leveled those accusations. Finally, after four people in the same family were dead, there was someone in this story who suspected foul play. Dr. McGuire had listened to Aunt Mary's concerns about the funny-tasting broth, the delay in calling him, the white pills, and her niece Annie's generally odd behavior. Annie had insisted on treating each of the deceased family members with different remedies. She had collected the life insurance money. Aunt Mary and Gertrude had watched Annie at Elisa's funeral. Her coldness, her lack of compassion made them suspicious. What if she had killed all of them, they thought. It was such a horrid thing to accuse a family member of. Gertrude was scared of Annie by this time. Her sister had offered her some funny-tasting milk, too. Gertrude and Aunt Mary thought it all added up to murder. So Dr. McGuire went to work. Very quickly, the doctor issued orders that Elisa's body be exhumed for examination. McGuire took samples from the body of fluids and decided to send them to the city chemist, who was a guy by the name of Abraham L. Metz. And what did Dr. Metz find? So Metz analyzes the fluids, and he determines that the fluids had massive amounts of morphine. Wow. Enough, enough to kill five grown men. Five grown men? Never before had he found such a large quantity of crystallized morphine in the human body. Wow. And to confirm his analysis... There was another guy by the name of Dr. Charles Duval of Tulane uh, University Medical School that examined the organs as well. And there were lesions on the spleen that indicated opium poisoning. So the police were dispatched to find Annie and they bring her in for questioning, I'm assuming. The next day, the police arrive at the residence and they walk in and it looks like somebody's moving out. Hmm. And uh, they had boxes that were lining the floor and the furniture had already been removed from the residence. I didn't get any indication as to where they had moved to. The girl's aunt, Mary, stated to investigators that the family possessed plans to separate. Robert and Mary Crawford had decided that it was time to leave their home on Peters Avenue. They had watched Elise die there. They couldn't live there any longer. Gertrude stood on their porch and wept. She and Annie were supposed to go to Port Arthur, Texas, and live with their eldest sister, Emma, and her husband. But the police had other plans. 
the authorities wanted to question everyone. So <laughs> in order to get everyone down to the police station, they had to stop a streetcar. Hmm. And they commandeered the streetcar and brought them down to the local police headquarters, which at the time, I believe, was on Loyola Avenue. Police investigators sat Annie Crawford down in the interrogation room, and they talked to Annie's Aunt Mary. They called on Mary Crawford to make a statement. And she said that Annie appeared reticent to call the doctor until Mary, the aunt, forced her to do it. Hmm. So what happens is the focus goes from the rest of the family to Annie and they start questioning her. And at first she denies it. You know, I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I don't know why my aunt's acting like this. They spent hours peppering Annie with pointed questions about the death of her younger sister, Elise. As an assistant scribbled her answers down on a pad, Annie replied to each question. How did she get that much morphine? The police chief asked. I don't know, Annie answered calmly. When she spoke to the police, she said, here, I'm going to quote here. Yes, I gave her three capsules. (laughs) She admitted that she had given Elise the pills that Dr. McGuire had prescribed for Elise's upset stomach. But Annie was certain that the white pills she offered Elise were filled with bicarbonate of soda, not morphine. Wouldn't you know the difference? asked the police chief. No, Annie replied. Don't all capsules look alike to you? But that seems unlikely because Annie had handled morphine pills daily for years. The chief asked, why didn't you call a doctor immediately? Annie replied, I thought that Elise would just get over it. The police chief relayed all of this information to the district attorney of New Orleans, Sinclair Adams. Adams weighed the case. It was largely circumstantial. Could the savvy prosecutor prove that the meek, seemingly harmless spinster was a ruthless killer? Yes, replied Adams. Charge her with first-degree murder. Adams was sure that this was no accident. This was a well-planned murder executed by a dope fiend for the insurance money. Annie Crawford would go on trial for her sister's death. Historian Terence Fitzmorris says that Sinclair claimed greed and addiction were the motives, and morphine was the weapon. I think the district attorney, Sinclair Adams, had a reputation of being a a hard-nosed prosecutor and... Given the number of sensational murders that are going on around that time, and even earlier, of women who killed their lovers, women who killed their husbands, this is a sensational murder, which has all the earmarks of, you know, a scandal. And what did Sinclair Adams say that Annie actually did with all that money? Daughter kills mother, kills father, kills sisters, takes the money and buys clothes for herself and any pleasures that she can get. It's a sensational story. Sinclair claimed that the loss of Annie's job and her access to money and opium were all catalysts. Access to drugs coupled with addiction is often problematic for others in the medical profession. Annie admitted to the police that she herself was addicted to morphine. The medical examiner, Dr. Metz, said that no one should believe anything that Annie Crawford said. And he says, quote, morphine fiends should not be believed unless corroborated by reliable persons. My experience with them was that they are inveterate liars 
and no dependence was to be placed on what they said. They always tried to hide their fault. Hmm. This was a doctor. Uh, He was a chemist, but he's making a behavioral type of assessment on her at the same time. Morphine fiend. That's why Annie had the pills. And when the press in New Orleans heard the story, reporters began calling Annie a dope fiend. Our modern press would probably refer to her as a drug addict. But she was labeled by the media as a drug-addled murderer right from the start. Sarah Kaiser now works in addiction recovery, but more than a decade ago, she was a licensed nurse working at nursing homes in New England while she was addicted to heroin and morphine, among other things. Sarah says that anyone in the medical profession is susceptible to becoming addicted, whether it's before they become licensed or even during their time practicing. Nurses tend to have certain personality types. We're helpers and we're fixers. So there's that. And then there's access. But I think it's a lot of like you do what you can with where you are if you happen to also have that disease of addiction. So there's a ton of nurses who aren't hooked on pills, who don't steal medicine. Sarah and I are talking about outliers. According to experts, less than 6% of medical professionals struggle with drug abuse. And not all of them become addicts on the job. In fact, Sarah was an addict even before she went to nursing school. I went to nursing school when I was, quote unquote, in recovery, right? Okay. So I had a couple years where I was sober and I had gone to treatment, um, I think, for the first time when I was 19. And I came out and I was like, oh, now I'm going to finally be a nurse. So I went to school and A's became my drive, that motivating factor. And um, I stayed sober pretty much till the end of it. And then shortly towards the end, I think I had to have my gallbladder out or something. And I had to have substances, but I didn't have the recovery foundation behind me. So you struggled. Um, I was going through the motions and I was doing what was expected of me, but not actually putting in effort. Okay, you get through nursing school, which is no small feat, and you start working for a hospital. Mm Mm-hmm. I was an LPN, so I was working in nursing homes, um, and I had relapsed. I, I had resumed use, and all of a sudden, it was it was right there. So it, it wasn't—the diverting meds didn't come first. The temptation didn't come from my work. My work became a means to satisfy the problem that I had resumed externally. Were your patients at the nursing home, was there ever a risk to them? from you or anybody, frankly, who who would have been using or an active addict at the time? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a good nurse. I wasn't as attentive as I should have been. I was skipping treatments. I was skipping certain medications. Obviously, they weren't getting the medications that were owed to them. A high nurse is not a good nurse. But were you functioning? When I was impaired, I, I was not a good nurse. And so I actually took myself out of nursing before the DEA caught up with me. So I remember I I was working for a pool and I was, uh, which means you, you kind of float around to like different facilities where you're needed and plug in. And I remember just saying like, I'm going to kill someone if I keep doing this. Oh no. Not like on purpose. Like I'm going to make a mistake that's going to end someone's life. And I remember having this moment of clarity where I was like, if that happens, I'm probably never going to be able to actually get sober. Like, I don't want to get sober today, but I also don't want to do something that the guilt prevents me from recovery later. So around 2009, Sarah turned herself in. Soon after, she lost her license. 
After she entered recovery, Sarah eventually earned back that license, but she's no longer working as a nurse by her choice. I asked Sarah what could be done to change the system, the one that allowed her to move from facility to facility with impunity. I think we have to be rigorous probably with the reporting and not be afraid to report people in that field because it can actually help someone. It helps the patients, but it also helps the nurse. I think we're so afraid to do that because we don't want to be a snitch. We don't want to ruin someone's career, but that's just enabling behavior. And enabling behavior can kill people. In 1911, the chief of police of New Orleans and the prosecutor were trying to settle on a motive for murder. The case against Annie Crawford was befuddling to investigators. The DA had established that Annie was addicted to morphine, and she admitted it. Annie had been labeled by the police and the media as a drug fiend. Why would Annie intentionally give her sister too much morphine? Perhaps Annie was high the night that Elise returned home and complained of an aching stomach. Maybe Annie overreacted to her sister's demands for drugs, and maybe she made a mistake. The police chief asked her, how did you and Elise get along? Annie replied, not well. Elise didn't treat me right, Annie explained coldly. She refused to be specific, but Annie had complained in the past that Elise would virtually ignore her at home. Just like her Aunt Mary, Elise seemed to resent Annie's controlling behavior, There had been a rift between the sisters for years, and that might have been a motive. Author Mary Kay McBrayer wrote a book about the serial killer Jane Toppin. Investigators in her story finally became suspicious when multiple members of one family died, just like in Annie Crawford's case. But in Toppin's case, there seemed to be little animosity toward her victims, so it was hard to make the connections until there were too many deaths to ignore. That's when the detectives are like, there's no way all four of these family members who were in totally fine health before just happened to come into this woman's orbit and then died unexpectedly. Like, there's no way she's not related in some way. In 1911, when the police chief questioned her about the deaths of her sister, Mary Agnes, and her parents, Annie simply shrugged. Their doctors had determined that Mary Agnes died of spinal meningitis, while their parents had both died from uremia poisoning. None of these deaths seemed to surprise their doctors at the time, even though they were less than two months apart. But because of the suspicions about uh, Walter, his wife, and Agnes, Adams moved to have those bodies exhumed for examination. Gravediggers at St. Patrick's Cemetery No. 3 located the remains of the parents and the young woman, but the medical examiner was not optimistic from the start. We don't know about the, the other three. We do know about Elise. They, they couldn't exhume the bodies and the others because they wouldn't have been able to tell if any morphine had been in it. So the DA wouldn't be able to charge Annie with those three deaths because there wasn't enough forensic evidence. Greed was not a strong enough motive because the life insurance money was not very much. The prosecutor would need to lean on a lease to convict Annie Crawford. Her her body was exhumed twice. The first time to to see if there was morphine in in her bodily fluids, which they did fine. Then they went back the second time to, to see the extent of the morphine damage. So they needed more proof. It was obvious that Elise had died of some sort of drug overdose. 
That was clear. But you couldn't prove it for the other sister, uh, Mary Agnes. You couldn't prove it for the father, Walter. You couldn't prove it for the mother, Emma. So any of those, no, none of those circumstances were, were supported by the forensic evidence. I know they couldn't prove that Annie's parents and Mary Agnes were murdered. But again, four people? In a strange coincidences, I suppose. And I guess we'll never know because we don't, we, we don't have the forensic evidence. But here's something interesting. I assumed that Annie was murdering her family members for the life insurance money because she needed to support her own morphine habit. She knew that she wouldn't have access to the hospital for much longer, right? How many excuses can you make to visit your old job? And she was fired on suspicion that she was stealing pills. So perhaps Annie Crawford needed money because of her addiction. But she had a good answer for that. Annie claimed that there simply wasn't enough money to justify murder. The life insurance money from her two sisters and her mother totaled just a few hundred dollars, and much of that went to their funerals and burials. Her father Walter's estate was just $1,000, and all of that money was now gone. Why would she kill four people for such a small amount of money, she asked the district attorney. Sinclair Adams claimed that Annie used most of it for her personal clothes, and very little of it went to the funerals. But that's not what Annie's surviving sister said. And really, Annie doesn't strike me as someone who valued material things, particularly fancy clothes. Sarah Kaiser, the former nurse, is very skeptical that money was a motive, either for vanity items or for drugs. So here's the question, though, that I have. Like, was the murder for gain? Was it to gain the money so she could get more drugs? Like, was this behavior a result of her addiction? Right. I have a hard time with this, though, because, I mean, I've been clean, like, over 11 years now, but I still remember the mentality of being a drug addict. And I would be damned if I was going to give someone else the drugs intentionally without some sort of other weird motive. So like, I have a hard time believing that she was like this because of the drugs. So you don't think that an addict would have given away her pills even to murder someone for more money? That doesn't make sense to you. I left with the impression that like, she was a drug addict. She took actions and murdered because she was a drug addict to support her habit. Mm-hmm. Um, but then sitting here thinking about it, I'm like, well, it doesn't make she's sense. Kind of a bad soul. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. I think she was a faux addict. I don't think she was a real junkie. I'm sorry. Historian Terrence Fitzmorris agrees with Sarah. He has read extensively about Annie's arrest and her trial. She was never offered an attorney. Her family wasn't defending her. In fact, they were suspicious of her. So her stress level must have been very high. Without morphine in her system, she would have likely been having withdrawals. She would have broken out in sweats. She would have become extremely irritable and belligerent, demanding, screaming, probably going into a fetal position of some sort. And she never did any of that. Showed no indication of that at all. And I think one of the doctors sort of poo-pooed the idea that she could have been a a drug addict because of her cool demeanor and the lack of any of these withdrawal symptoms, which would have been quite prevalent. Because morphine is so powerful. And these doctors would have known that, particularly ones that that are dealing in this sort of pain management and giving off these drugs to these these people to make make sure that they are calm and and, and out of pain. 
But if Annie weren't using morphine, why was she stealing it? Was it to help her sister Elise? Remember, Annie said that they never got along. Or was it to murder her family out of spite? Of course, there are conflicting stories here, so it's hard to be sure. Some newspaper reports at the time claimed that the police might have been providing Annie with morphine just to keep her from going into withdrawal, which could derail a trial. So maybe she was an addict after all. But also, some reporters in the case were unreliable, maybe because the DA wasn't providing them with enough accurate information. And no one in her family said that Annie was an addict. But they did admit that Elise was an addict. At this point in the story, I've begun questioning a number of things, mostly because my experts have questions that I hadn't thought of. Terrence isn't actually sure that Annie was guilty of murder at all. He suggests that even though she always seemed to have a cool demeanor, Annie might have used some morphine from the hospital to cope with the loss of so many family members. For someone like Annie, it, it's a distinct possibility that she would have tried to, to use what little dollar she had of morphine and opiates to relieve some of her pain and suffering, particularly her mental pain and suffering. You know, to lose her sister, her mother, her father, and then another sister in the space of 14 months would unnerve and crack even the most stable of human beings. Terrence has a sympathetic view of Annie, more than I do. Annie and Elise never seemed to get along, but despite that, Terrence believes that Annie was actually trying to help her sister in a twisted sort of way. She is under great strain and, and, and stress when she's taking these drugs out of the hospital. And my suspicion is that she's taking these drugs out of the hospital to serve her sister's addiction more so than her own. From reading the, the testimony in the newspapers, she doesn't seem unhinged in the sense that she's a drug addict. Yeah. I think it comes off loud and clear. I think she's smuggling these drugs to help her sister Elise overcome her uh, addiction to morphine. So Annie is supplying Elise with morphine? I think that's what happened to Elise. She gave her the drugs, the morphine, demanding it. And because we'll never know that. That's speculation. And historians should never speculate. We should go with the evidence. But in this case, you have to go on what little evidence you have. And it seems to me, one, she's not a drug addict. Two, the explanation of giving her some mild sort of sedative of some sort doesn't smack right. It just seems that she was involved in nursing her sister, and I think she gave her the morphine, and she had an adverse response to it and went into a a morphine coma and died. Wow, that's not a theory I was expecting. Elise was unstable and had threatened to kill herself at least once before. And she had a child out of wedlock. And imagine in a Roman Catholic Irish family Mm -hmm. um, that uh, a child born out of wedlock I mean, I have older friends who believe that that no Irishman ever had a child out of wedlock. <laughs> it's just <laughs> ludicrous, you know. And um, those things happen in a in a world, you know. And that was a serious issue for her to face. And she didn't have an abortion; gave up the child silently, I'm sure, in some orphanage, probably not far from where they lived. And there were a lot of orphanages in the early 1900s in New Orleans. There were orphanages on Napoleon Avenue where they weren't too far away from from that. St. Vincent's Infant Orphanage, which was farther downtown. 
But there were orphanages all over the city that were maintained by the Roman Catholic Church primarily because the death of mothers in childbirth or the death of parents in any number of accidents or, or uh, diseases was still rampant. Children died at an alarming rate. It seems clear that Elise was mourning many things. Was this an addiction that finally ended in an overdose and Annie had inadvertently provided the means? That's Terence Fitzmorris's theory. It's possible that she gave Elise the wrong drugs. I don't think so. I think she gave her the morphine because she demanded it. That's just my impression. I just had a friend whose son was a morphine addict and was off it for a while came back to it and just died of an overdose. And the explanation was his body couldn't take another round of this stuff. It had already absorbed as much as it possibly could, and that was the addiction. Did Elise beg Annie for more morphine and Annie accidentally gave her too much? And were the Crawfords covering up all of this to prevent shame being brought onto the family? I would think that a murder charge would result in bigger shame than the discovery of an addict. But these were different times. Annie Crawford's murder trial would begin in just a few months. Annie couldn't afford bail, so she sat in jail during that time. She also couldn't afford an attorney. But District Attorney Sinclair Adams would still face a tough foe in court. Two top-notch attorneys from New Orleans volunteered to defend her, no doubt because they sensed that this case would generate a lot of publicity. And strangely enough, one of the defense attorneys shared the same last name as the DA. So who does the district attorney face in court? He faces two... Uh, significant attorneys in Lionel Adams, whose firm still exists today, and Joseph Generelli, who was part of that firm. Alan told me a little bit more about Lionel Adams. The top lawyer was a guy named Lionel Adams. I I used to be a a legal investigator and a legal support specialist, kind of like a paralegal. I did legal research and wrote briefs and stuff like that. And there's an old saying, if the law's against you, argue the facts. If the facts are against you, argue the law. Hmm. If the facts and the law are against you, pound the table. Okay. (laughs) And that was Lionel Adams. He was a great orator. Terrence says that this case would be a big win for the district attorney. This would be a real great thing for St. Clair Adams to put on his uh, dossier that he put away what he called an obviously great criminal. He called her that before we went to trial. She is a great criminal. Adams wasn't the only one profiling Annie. The local media scrutinized her in the newspapers, and the descriptions weren't flattering. The newspapers do depict her as creepy. They do depict her as being extremely eccentric, right? You know, cool, calculating, always in control of herself, and and yet mysterious and and, and and exotic. You know, dressed in black, of course, she could claim that she's in mourning. In fact, I'm looking at a picture of her right now, uh, a close-up of uh, when she was wearing glasses. And like you said, it it appears she's in a black black dress Mm -hmm. and she's being escorted down some steps. 
So she was judged by her appearance. She was frail, wan, mysterious. Uh, she was unattractive, big lips, big nose, big cheekbones, you know, all these things with the opposite of any sort of you know, feminine beauty or standards of the day. Yeah, all you need to do is look at those newspapers from the early 1900s. If you look at the newspapers, you'll see these drawings, at least the early part of the 20th century, advertisements of these delicate and gorgeous women with the Venus-like figures, you know, and hair that is silky and beautiful, and they have all the tasteful clothes. And you know that's not, the, uh, that's not a reality. Maybe Annie Crawford didn't care about how she was portrayed in the media. She had bigger worries. At the pretrial hearings in 1911, the judge asked a simple question. How do you plead to the murder of your sister, Elise Crawford? Nothing. Annie was silent. So she goes into court on the 28th of uh, September, 1911, and she appeared for her arraignment. And when she was asked to plead guilty or not guilty, she, she didn't respond. So the judge entered a plea of not guilty. Now, this was after she made a statement that she could have made a mistake. Annie's defense was simple. She regrettably made a mistake and gave Elise the wrong capsules. How could the district attorney prove that wasn't true in a purely circumstantial case? There seemed to be multiple motives, but were any of them convincing? Terrence Fitzmorris doesn't think so. So you don't think that that Annie Crawford is a murderer. You just think she's a bad nurse, essentially. I think she's a bad sister because she should have taken the child to a doctor or to a sanitarium that dealt with that. Should never have self-medicated or her sister. But I think there was so much embarrassment over what her sister's life had become that, that she probably did not want to do that. Annie made some big mistakes, though, don't you think? She, she called several doctors. You know, the one doctor, McGuire, was recent to the family. He didn't start treating Elise until 1911. And by that time, I think she's pretty far gone. And he even says he, when he initially saw her that night of the that she died, that he thought that she had committed, was attempting to commit suicide. And so that's another key piece of evidence or information that comes our way that, you know, it had all the earmarks of someone who was overdosing and maybe, just maybe, Annie was uh, the culprit in that regard. If Annie had murdered Elise, or had she overdosed Elise accidentally, what about the other three family members who died within a year or so of each other? In the last episode, Dr. Neil Bradbury mentioned something to me. Mary Agnes supposedly died of meningitis. Walter and his wife both died of uremia. Both diseases mimicked morphine poisoning. Both diseases had killed many people in the early 1900s. Would it have been impossible that all three died of meningitis and uremia? No, it wasn't unbelievable at all. It happened at the turn of the century a lot, and three different doctors didn't find the Crawford death suspicious until Aunt Mary raised a red flag a year later with Elisa's death. As cold and aloof as Annie Crawford was, I wonder if it's possible that Annie was actually innocent of murdering her parents and her sisters. But would jurors in 1911 believe that Annie Crawford could be innocent of murder? 
When jury selection began, Sinclair Adams was very direct to potential jurors. Sinclair Adams was talking about, about will you convict a woman? Would you, uh, if you convict a woman, would you convict her under uh, charges that would bring the death penalty? In the early 1900s, only men were allowed to serve on juries in Louisiana. Women wouldn't be allowed until 1924. Would an all-male jury in New Orleans really convict a woman of murder and then sentence her to death? The nine final members of the panel all replied yes, if the case were convincing. But perhaps the bigger question before them was, did Annie Crawford even commit murder? That answer was much more complicated. And it still is. On the final episode of this season of Tenfold War Wicked on Exactly Right. They had depicted her in such a fashion that she was a moral monster. And this stemmed from also their depiction of her as being anything but attractive. You know, that no man would possibly look at Annie Crawford uh, more than once. She was a spinster and an old maid even before she was 30 years old. But these two couldn't stand each other. And what happens is, if the defendant gets on the stand, it's almost an assured conviction because the prosecution gets free reign. Hearing this story, what would you think about her, Nanny? I'd be kind of afraid of her. Luckily, you didn't know. I mean, I, what would that? That would have been a knockdown, dragout fight, wouldn't you think? Oh, right. I'm, I don't know that I'd want to move into the house with her. <laughs> If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked, which is based on the first season of Tenfold War Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold War Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold War Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold War. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldwarwicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.